Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. Good morning, Four Persons Blog Talk Radio Show fans. This is the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show with me, your host, Ken Litchfield. We have a great show planned for you today. I'll be discussing the Word of God. If you have any questions on this topic, feel free to call in at 515-602-9655. If you'd like a copy of today's show notes, you can send me an email at catholicken.com at thefourpersons.com. That's Catholic with a K and at the, the number four, persons.com. I'm also available to come speak at your parish on this or many other topics. You can contact me at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. So let's get started. Catholics and Protestants both believe that the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible tells us in John 1.1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we know Jesus is the Word of God from the beginning before time. There was an early heresy in the Catholic Church proposed by a priest named Arius that taught that Jesus was the first of God's creation but not co-eternal with God the Father. This heresy was sorted out at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, after a lot of very vigorous debate. Catholic Christians and Protestant Christians both agree that the Bible contains sufficient information for our salvation. Protestants often string verses together to the whole Bible that it assembled. The Catholic Church interprets the Bible based on the interpretation and practices handed down by the apostles to the bishops they ordained. We see this in Titus chapter 1, where Paul tells Titus that he left him in Crete to teach soundly and to pass on that teaching to men he ordains, 
who will pass it on to others. Paul doesn't just give Titus a copy of the Bible and tell him to use this. Some people think that everything the apostles or their secretaries wrote down became scripture as soon as they wrote it. We only have writings from six of the twelve apostles. And in the New Testament, most of those writings are from the Apostle Paul, who didn't even follow Jesus around from the very beginning. It is highly irrational to think that these six men only wrote 27 books and that none of the other six apostles ever wrote anything to their churches. Most likely, the six authors of the New Testament and the six other apostles wrote other writings. Perhaps notes about what Jesus taught or guidance letters to their churches, like Paul's letters, are. We need to remember that reading and writing were a specialized skill back then, and everything had to be handwritten and hand-delivered, and writing materials were expensive compared to today. Also, the Romans who persecuted the Christians burned the writings they had on hand to help reduce the spread of Christianity. This is why the faith was taught more orally than by written books handed, down, handed out to inquirers about the faith. There was no printing press to make multiple copies easily. No copy machines, no email. Everything had to be hand copied and delivered. The Gospels written by Matthew and John are based on what they learned as disciples of Jesus. The Gospel written by Mark is based on what he learned from the Apostle Peter. The Gospel of Luke is based on what he learned in his research by interviewing other eyewitnesses and compiling and comparing their testimony. Luke tells us he is writing an orderly account of what happened based on other people's testimony in the beginning of his gospel. Peter, James, Jude, and John wrote general letters of guidance for the early churches and to address questions of doctrine. Paul wrote his letters to the bishops he ordained, Timothy and Titus. Paul also wrote letters to the churches in Corinth, Ephesus, Thessalonica, Galatia, Philippi, and Rome. Paul also wrote a letter to Philemon to have mercy on the slave Onesimus when he returns to Philemon. The letter to the Hebrews is likely written by Paul. The book of Revelation by John gives warning to churches of his time which are also examples of churches in our time. He gives an account of the destruction of Jerusalem and a warning of things to come at the end of the church age. These letters were copied and shared by the receivers so other churches would have the information as well. In 1 Corinthians 5.9, Paul refers to a previous letter he wrote to the Corinthians. This is what he says in 5.9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral persons. So before Paul wrote the letter that we now call 1 Corinthians, there was an earlier letter. In Colossians 4.16, Paul tells the Colossians to exchange letter 
accords with the one he wrote to the Laodiceans. And this, when this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you read the letter from, the, the Laodice, from Laodicea. Yet these writings of Paul are not in the New Testament. Therefore, it is logical to conclude that the New Testament is not a complete record of everything that Jesus and the apostles taught. This provides a good foundation for the sacred tradition that was also handed on by the apostles, as mentioned in 1 Corinthians 11.2, 2 Timothy 1, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, and 2 John, verse 12. There were other first century writings that were also copied and shared and read during the Mass in the early Christian churches. The Epistle of Barnabas, first Clement to the Corinthians, the Shepherd of Hermas, and the Didache were all written in the first century and shared amongst the early Catholic Christian churches. When the Catholic Church was establishing the canon of Scripture, it reviewed the collection of early Christian writings to see which ones supported the apostolic tradition and which were read in the churches known by the apostles to be founded by the apostles and had apostolic authors or secretaries. By the time the Catholic Church established the canon of Scripture, there were over 140 early Christian writings that could have been in the New Testament. First Clement to the Corinthians, the Didache, the Epistle of Barnabas, Shepherd of Hermas, were read in many of the early churches. The Book of Revelation by John, as opposed to the Book of Revelation by Peter, Hebrews, Jude, James, Second Peter, Second and Third John were considered questionable by many of the early churches. People who do not know Bible history mistakenly think that the books of the New Testament were the only writings of the first century of Christianity. Historical research shows otherwise. The Bible alone was not the practice of Christians in the first century, since the writings that later became the New Testament were still being written. It was not the practice of Christians in the 100s or 200s or 300s, because during this time, different churches had different books that they read during the liturgy of the Mass. The Catholic Church didn't establish which books could be read at Mass until the late 300s. Jesus left his oral tradition with his apostles. Some of that oral tradition was written down. We call the written tradition the New Testament, which includes part of what Jesus taught. Nowhere in does the New Testament teach that we are to go by the Bible alone. But many Protestants are taught the tradition that the Bible is the sole infallible authority or the highest authority. 
This is what the Bible does teach about Scripture. A very popular uh, section of the Bible that Protestants like to point to is in 2 Timothy 3.16 through 17, Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. These verses need to be read in the context of the previous two verses of 3.14 and 3.15. So starting at verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. The scriptures of Timothy's youth was the Old Testament, because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. Likely, it would have been the Greek Septuagint version of the Old Testament because Timothy lived in a Greek city, had a Greek father, and a Jewish mother. The mother of Timothy was a Jewess named Eunice. She later, however, became a Jewish Christian, as shown in Acts chapter 16, verse 1, and 2 Timothy 1.5. His father was a Greek Gentile. The grandmother of Timothy on his mother's side was named Lois, and she too became a Christian. Both women were likely converted during Paul's first evangelistic journey to the city in 46 AD, when he healed a crippled man soon after, but soon after Paul was stoned, but soon after the man was stoned to death and resurrected. See Acts chapter 14. Timothy was the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. It was believed, it is believed based on Acts chapter 16 verses 1 through 3 and 2 Timothy 1 5 and 3 14 through 15 that Timothy's father did not become a Christian and may likely have been dead by the time Paul came to Lysteria. Lystra, that is, sorry. The Greek Septuagint Old Testament contains the books that Protestants removed from their Old Testament. The Bereans from Acts chapter 17 also would likely have been using the Greek Septuagint version of the Old Testament, since they lived in a Greek city as well. Protestants like to point to the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 and say, see, they checked what Paul taught based on the scriptures, but they're so ignorant of the Bible that was available to the Bereans at that time and the fact that the Bereans lived in a Greek-speaking city so that their Old Testament would have been the Septuagint. So they were checking what Paul was teaching on by using the Septuagint, which contains the books of the Bible 
of the Old Testament that Protestants are now missing. However, if you check the original King James 1611 edition, you'll find those books in there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul warns the Corinthians not to go beyond what is written. Paul is not writing about going beyond what is written in the scriptures. He is writing about those whose names are in the book of life and how they are in there by the gift of God's grace. So do not be proud of being in the book of life. So none of these verses in the Bible say we should go by the Bible alone. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 10, 12 through 13, it says, Indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than two -edged, any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before him no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. Since this verse was written before the New Testament was finished, the word of God at that time is the Old Testament. The Apostle John writes in his Gospel at the end of chapter 20, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through this belief you may have life in his name. At the end of chapter 21, John writes, It is this disciple, John, who testifies to these things and has written them, and that we know his testimony is true. There are also many other things that Jesus did, but if these... But if these were to be described individually, I do not think the whole world could, could contain all the books that would be written. These verses tell us that everything that Jesus did and said are not written in the Bible. The teachings that are not written in the Bible were passed down through the oral apostolic tradition. The Bible is the written part of the whole apostolic tradition. In 1 Peter chapter 3, we find, just as Noah and his family were saved through water, baptism now saves you. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink, and you must eat my flesh and drink my blood to have eternal life. At the Last Supper, Jesus shows his disciples how they were to eat his flesh and drink his blood. In Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, Luke chapter 22, and Paul covers it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Catholic understanding of baptismal regeneration and the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist can be historically traced all the way back to the beginning of Christianity. And this understanding is the apostolic tradition based on the written what we have as the written tradition in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 55:11, it says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, and it shall not accomplish pose, 
and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In this passage, Isaiah is referring to his prophetic words that he spoke to the Israelites. It does not include the later writings of the Old Testament or the New Testament writings. At the time that Isaiah was written, the Sadducees did not consider any of the writings after the five books of Moses to be scripture. This verse from Isaiah cannot be used to support the claim that the whole Bible is inspired, since the whole Bible did not exist at the time it was written. When Protestants pluck out individual verses from the Bible to support the tradition that they've been taught, they neglect to be taught the fact that all those verses need to be read in the context of when they were written. And the fact that Isaiah was written before Old Testament and the New Testament were written tells us that it can't be used to support the idea that the whole Bible is the Word of God. But it does confirm for us that all the writings of the Old Testament are the Word of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul warns the Corinthians about not going beyond what is written. Protestants like to use this verse to say that we're not supposed to be go on go beyond what is written in the Bible. Some Protestants say that we should only go by the New Testament, and even other Protestants say we should only go by the writings of Paul in the New Testament because the writings of the other New Testament writers are only for the Jews. Like with many other things in Protestantism, there's a variety of opinions, and they use certain verses from the Bible to support their tradition that they were taught by some guy. The Catholic Church uses the sacred tradition that the apostles handed down before there was a New Testament and the sacred scriptures that the church later assembled. When there were disputes on interpretations of scripture, church councils were held that gave binding decrees just like the first church council in Jerusalem that did not go by the scriptures alone. The Pope gives us gives approval to the council decisions and also offers papal encyclicals to guide the church. These are the magisterial commentaries that were given over a thousand years before the start of any Protestant church. The, at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, if they would only gone by the scriptures at that council, they would only have had the Old Testament as their scriptures. And since the Old Testament required followers of God to the males to be circumcised and to follow the other 613 laws of Moses, Gentiles that wanted to become Christians would have to become Jews first. And that was one of the major disputes at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. Now, it was Peter's testimony at the Council of Jerusalem where he spoke about how he went to see Cornelius and saw that those his Gentile family 
was able to receive the Holy Spirit without becoming Jews first. And after they had received the Holy Spirit, the whole family was baptized. Some Protestants like to use this section of the book of Acts, I believe it's in chapter 10, to support their idea that you know you have to receive the Holy Spirit before you get baptized. But in Acts chapter 2, the it says that after the Jews are become convinced that they need to become Christians, they ask Peter, what must we do? And Peter tells them to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of the sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the normal way that things happen is that a person is baptized, and at that point, they receive the Holy Spirit. And we see this when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and after Jesus comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of a dove. The existence of the oral tradition is referred to in many places in the New Testament. Jesus commands his disciples to go out and teach the whole world everything he taught them. And we find that at the end of Matthew chapter 28. Jesus did not tell them to write it all down and make sure everyone gets a copy. John's Gospel in chapters 20 and 21 tell us that Jesus did many other things that are not recorded in the Bible. Since most people could not read and books had to be copied by hand, the Gospel was passed on through oral tradition by the teaching of the Apostles. There is solid evidence of the oral tradition in the New Testament and Christians were commanded to hold it, hold to the oral tradition, along with the written tradition. And there are many biblical references to support this. The preaching of the gospel has always been by oral preaching. Even the Jews, uh, when they would meet at the synagogue or at the temple on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, someone would read the scriptures to them. The Jews didn't get out their pocket Old Testament to read along with the reader of the scriptures. Because like most of the early Christians, most of the early Jews couldn't read. Reading and writing were a specialized skill like a plumber or a carpenter or a stonemason or a sculptor, things like that. It was a specialized tradition skill. The preaching of the gospel has always been by oral preaching, even if literary forms of the gospel are canonized in our scriptures. So we are not surprised to hear St. Paul and the, say to the Thessalonians, because of this, we also give thanks to God unceasingly, so that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you received it, not as the word of men, but just as it truly is, the word of God, which also is at work in you who believe. And you find that in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. The apostolic transmission of this gospel was essential to God's redemptive plan for the cosmos. The writer of the Hebrews 
exhorts his readers, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which in the beginning was spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? And we find that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. John echoes this in his gospel, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have gazed upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness, and we declare to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you, in order that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that our joy may be fulfilled. And this is the message which we have heard from him, and we announce to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And you'll find that in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. From the beginning of the world, God's redemption is communicated orally. Not only that, however, it is also transmitted from generation to generation, orally. St. Paul writes, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. And you'll find that in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. Note that Paul does not spell out the de in detail to the church in Philippi all the things that they had learned and received and heard and saw in him, here in his epistle to them. He presumes a certain content in their understanding, a content embodied by his way of life among them, and he need only note in summary here in his epistle. That is to say, there was an oral tradition in addition to his letter, which he calls them to practice. Paul goes on to say or to Timothy, hold to the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. And you'll find that in Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Paul doesn't say here, put into practice the scriptures you have studied from your youth, but enjoins upon them the things they heard and saw him say and do, which is not to say that Paul would not want Timothy to put Old Testament into practice, but it is to say it was the oral tradition that Timothy was to put into practice. Note also that this exhortation and the following one are from the very same text that will later claim that all scripture, the primary reference here is to the Old Testament, is God outbreathed and is profitable for the leaders of the church and their ministry to the church members of teaching, reproof, and correction and training in righteousness. Indeed, it is ironic that those who misinterpret these verses to teach the all-sufficiency of Scripture over and against oral tradition 
fail to reckon the fact that Paul does not enjoin Timothy to ask for the ancient paths of the Lord, as referenced in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, but instead exhorts him to hold to the pattern of sound words, which he had heard from Paul. He continues to exhort Timothy, and the things which you have heard from me through many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be competent to teach others. And you'll find that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Again, Timothy is not enjoined to write about it or disseminate the Old Testament or Paul's letter, but to disseminate what he had heard. We don't deny the essential essentiality of the scriptures, nor that Christians ought to hold to them and to disseminate them. But I'm pointing out that Paul commanded Timothy to do something quite specific, to hold to the oral tradition and to pass it on. Indeed, that this keeping of the oral tradition is important to the Christian way of life, is further supported by the letter to the Hebrews. The author of, the he of Hebrews notes that the surpassing nature of the final revelation in Christ demands that we must give earnest attention to that which we have heard. On account of this, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. And you'll find that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Here, the emphasis on the oral tradition is clear. The author of Hebrews is writing that which will later become canonized as scripture and could refer to the Old Testament scriptures. But he does not encourage his readers to give more earnest heed to the scriptures, but to the oral tradition that they had received, and that failure to do so would be for them to drift away. The key to this oral tradition is its antiquity, that is, it predates all the New Testament writings and goes back to the beginning. Brothers, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Therefore, let that which you heard from the beginning abide in you. And what you have heard from the beginning abides in you. You also will abide in the Son and in the Father. You'll find that in 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 and 24. And this is the love that we walk according to his commandments. That is the commandment, the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. You'll find that in Second John chapter 6. Once again, ad adherence to the oral tradition is essential for the life of faith, doing so well, enable to us in the Son and in the Father. Not only does this final revelation of God in Christ begin the oral declaration of St. John, the forerunner, it extends the oral declaration of John the Revelator in the Apocalypse, as Jesus exhorts his church in Sardis. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, and hold fast and repent. 
Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you like a thief. By no means shall you know what hour I shall come upon you. You'll find that in Revelation chapter 3, verse 3. The church in Sardis was called back to the oral tradition. Once again, whether or not we hold to the oral tradition has eternal consequences. For not only is the oral word to be heard, it is to be lived. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you, of whom, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. You find that in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Indeed, we do this so that we may increase our diligence and avoid dullness. But we desire that each of one of you show the same diligence and the full assurance of hope until the last, lest you become dull, but lest you become dull, but become imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. You'll find that in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Paul tells his readers, Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. Be imitators of me, just as I am also an imitator of Christ. Therefore be imitators of God, as beloved children. Be fellow imitators of me, brothers. Look out for those walking this way, just as you have us for a pattern and you become imitators of us of the Lord in that you receive the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit for you brothers become imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus because you suffered the same things from your fellow countrymen just as also they did by the Jews and you'll find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, chapter 11, verse 1, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 2, verse 14. And what is it that the readers are to imitate? The oral tradition as lived by the apostles and those leaders who themselves are passing on the oral tradition. Christians should not hold to Scripture alone, but also what was taught by the church and received from the beginning, that which was believed always and everywhere. The oral tradition confirms and is supported by the later written tradition. The oral tradition can be confirmed by the Catholic teachings of the early church fathers who wrote about Catholic theology before the Catholic church discerned the canon of scripture. The doctrines of the Catholic church can be traced all the way back to the beginning through the bishops and the church fathers. There are many viewpoints given by church fathers and bishops that don't agree with the many doctrines of the Catholic church. But this can be reconciled by the fact that Jesus promised to be with his church until the end of the age, as shown in Matthew chapter 28. Church councils, like the first one held in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, gave Holy Spirit binding decrees on disputed doctrines, making them binding doctrines on all the faithful. 
there will always be dissenters, but Jesus' church will exist in every age because Jesus promised it would. The Bible alone is not sufficient for its interpretation. The Catholic Church interprets the Bible based on its 2,000 years of historical teachings that go back to the beginning of Christianity. It's important to know that at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, the Jewish Christians were pushing the idea that you had to become a Jew first before you could become a Christian, because Judaism is the foundation of Catholic Christianity. Some Protestant churches are getting more into the Jewish roots of Christianity, and hopefully that will help them come to the Catholic Church by understanding the Jewish foundation of the Catholic Church. We have to remember that all the apostles were Jews, and most of, well, all of the first converts to Christianity were also Jews. So they brought in their Jewish understanding of the Old Testament and their Jewish traditions and practices into Christianity. And that's why trying to go by just the New Testament leads you to so many different Protestant churches because so many people have their own interpretation of the New Testament. The large variety of Protestant churches demonstrates that the Bible alone cannot interpret itself. Each one is based on their founder's interpretation of the Bible. Most Protestants do not believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. Some Protestants teach baptismal regeneration, and others teach it as just a visible sign of a personal commitment to Jesus. Which Protestant correctly interprets the church, the Bible, based on these two concepts, the Lutheran Church or the Baptist Church. This shows that sola scriptura, even based on some church fathers or modern Protestant commentaries, doesn't maintain the unity of the church that Jesus desired and promised would exist in every age. I live in a small town that has five different Protestant churches that all teach different conflicting things. Yet also, in my small town, there's a Catholic church. And you can head up M19 to the Catholic church in the town of Emmett to the north, and they will teach the same thing there. And you could head south down M19 to the town of Richmond, and they will teach the same thing there. The town of Richmond to the south of me, which is slightly larger, has 15 different Protestant churches that all teach different conflicting things. Two different Lutheran churches in the town of Richmond. You would think that at least all the Lutherans could be on the same page. Protestants usually follow the church that agrees with their own Holy Spirit-guided understanding of the Bible. The various Protestant faith traditions have varied views on the interpretation of Scripture, which conflict with each other. Protestant churches do not agree on the basic, basic issues of salvation. Some agree with the Bible where it says, Baptism now saves you, in 1 Peter chapter 3, and some don't. 
This shows that Sola Scriptura is not capable of providing the unity that Jesus prayed for and did not exist in every age. This is why Jesus left his authority with the church and not with the Bible that later assembled. The real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist and baptismal regeneration are two concepts that exist in the churches that can be historically traced through the church fathers and bishops back to the beginning of Christianity. The Trinity is one. The church is one. Jesus only left one, only left behind one church with Peter at its head. That church is still here today, and that church is the Catholic. Most Protestants assume that when they read the, the word word in the Bible, that it means only the written word. Jesus is the word of God made flesh, as I mentioned earlier in John chapter 1, 1. The word that Jesus left behind when he ascended into heaven was his teaching with the apostles. Only five apostles that walked with Jesus ever wrote anything that later became the Bible. Most of the Bible, the writings of Paul and Luke, were written by people that did not walk with Jesus. Paul did receive personal revelation from Jesus, but was not a witness to Jesus' ministry. John's Gospel tells us that no book could hold everything that Jesus taught or did. But these things are written so that we may have eternal life. Jesus left a church behind that spread his teaching. Some of that teaching was written down, but most was passed on through oral tradition in the liturgy of the Mass. The Catholic Church, guided by the Holy Spirit, decided which of the early writings were inspired by the Holy Spirit and assembled them into a library now known as the Bible. The Catholic Church is the original interpreter of the Bible. When there were disputes about interpretation, the Church held councils or received guidance from the successor of Peter, like in Acts chapter 15. Jesus promised to be with his Church until the end of the age, not his book. The Catholic Church teaches that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant Word of God, which provides sufficient information for our salvation. The Bible came after the Church. The Church interprets the Bible. And Jesus only left one Church. Now, these are some aspects of the oral tradition which are not expressly stated or are obscure in the, in the New Testament. The first one is, the extent of the canon of Scripture. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell us which books belong in the Bible. If you look at the index of the books of the Bible, that's put in by the publisher. That's not part of the inspired Word of God. However, the canon of Scripture that we do have comes from the Catholic Church, and it evolved over time. The earliest reference that we have of the 
complete canon of scripture that we now have today comes from the Council of Rome in 382 AD. As close to that time, you know, just 20 years earlier, in 362 AD, they had a local council in the city of Laodicea. And in that local council, they decided that the book of Revelation is not a writing that they should read during the liturgy of the word at mass. Could you imagine how many Protestants would be out of, Protestant Baptist churches would be out of business if they didn't have the book of Revelation to preach on? Another apostolic tradition, oral tradition, that's not specifically written in the New Testament is triune baptism accompanied with fasting, both by the baptized and by the sponsors. And you'll find this in the Didache, chapter 7, Justin Martyr's First Apology, chapter 61. So these are some right, the Didache and Justin Martyr's First Apology are some early Christian writings. The Didache is from the first century and Justin Martyr's First Apology is from around 150 AD, but they give us some of information on the oral tradition that was commonly accepted and understood at that time. Only one Sunday Eucharist is celebrated by one president of the presbytery, presbytery or the bishop. We find support for that in First Clement chapter 41, St. Ignatius of Antioch in his letter to the Philadelphians in chapter 4. Another apostolic tradition, apostolic oral tradition, is the orderly succession of leadership from the apostles. And we find that in First Clement chapter 44 and St. Irenaeus against heresies in book 3, Chapter 3. Uh, Irenaeus writes that if there's a dispute amongst churches, they should decide which church can be traced back to its founding by an apostle. So a church that's founded by an apostle has authority, well, has more apostolic authority than a church founded by a church founded by a bishop from an apostle. There we go. And if two churches are both founded by an apostle, Irenaeus says, all you have to do is check with the church in Rome. And whatever they teach is correct because they have the teachings of Peter and Paul. So Irenaeus wrote in 180 AD, and as early as 180 AD, the church, you know, other bishops outside of Rome are recognizing that the church in Rome is the highest authority or the church of last resort. Uh, let's see, yeah. Another oral apostolic tradition is a specific order of worship with specific prayers recited. And we find this in the Didache, chapter 9, verses 10. At chapter 9 and 10, yep, and St. Justin's first apology in chapters 65 through 67. 
Another apostolic oral tradition is the Eucharistic elements are sacramentally the body and blood of Jesus. And we find this in the writings of St. Ignatius of Antioch in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 20, and St. Ignatius' letter to the Smyrnians, chapter 7, St. Justin Martyr's First Apology, chapter 66, and St. Irenaeus' writing against heresies, volume 5, chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. And the apostolic oral tradition of closed communion, that is, no unbaptized communicants. And we find this in the Didache, chapter 9, and St. Justin Martyr's First Apology, chapter 66. Another oral apostolic tradition is the Greek Old Testament. Septuagint is the Christian Old Testament, as opposed to the Hebrew, or it is later known, the Masoretic text. It is important to note that the Masoretic text was not assembled by the Jews until around 144 AD. So the Jews that rejected Jesus established their Old Testament canon of scripture a hundred years after Jesus ascended into heaven. I don't know why Protestants accept the Old Testament canon of scripture from the Jews that rejected Jesus, but yet they reject the Old Testament canon of scripture by the Jews that did accept Jesus, which is the Septuagint. And we find the confirmation of using the Septuagint as the Old Testament in St. Justin's Dialogue with Trypho, uh, chapters 71 through 73, and in St. Justin's Address to the Greeks, chapter 13, and in St. Irenaeus Against Heresies, book 3, chapter 21. Hippolytus of Rome was a bishop in the city of Rome and wrote around 215 AD. He wrote a writing called The Apostolic Tradition. And it's a great book uh, for people to read to understand which of the apostolic oral tradition that was in common use by all the Catholic Christian churches of that time. And Hippolytus of Rome wrote this, you know, to gather up all the apostolic oral traditions and to preserve them for future reference and sharing amongst the other churches of that time. 434 AD, St. Vincent of Larens wrote in his book, The Catholic Faith Against All Heresies, in chapter 2, verse 5, but here some perhaps will ask, since the canon of Scripture is complete and sufficient of itself for everything, and more than sufficient, what need is there to join with the authority of the Church's interpretation? For this reason, owing to the depth of Holy Scripture, all do not accept it in one and the same sense, but one understands its words in one way and another in another way. 
so that it seems to be capable of as many interpretations as there are interpreters. For Novation, an early heretic, expounds it in one way, and Sabellus, another early heretic, interprets it another way, and Donatus, another early heretic, interprets it another way. Arius, Emonius, Macedonius, another, Botinus, Apollinarius, Priscillan, another, Eovian, Pelagius, Cilicius, another, and lastly, Nestorius. Therefore, it is very necessary on account of so great intricacies of such various errors that the rule of, for the right understanding of the prophets and the apostles should be framed in accordance with the standard of ecclesiastical and Catholic interpretation. So all this to say that there is an authoritative interpreter of the scripture, and that is the Catholic Church. And we can see by the large variety of Protestant churches that if all you're doing is looking at the Bible, you can come up with a sort of different conflicting interpretations. Um, St. Vincent of Lorenz writes about all these early heretics that had their own interpretation of the Bible that was different than the Catholic Church. And Protestants churches today have a different interpretation of what the Catholic Church teaches. So unity can only be maintained with authority, and that's why Jesus left his authority with the Catholic Church, and not the book that the Catholic Church later assembled. The Catechism of the Catholic Church covers its teaching on the scriptures starting at paragraph 129 and all the way through 137, oh, 101 to 137, I'm sorry. So if you want to know what the Catholic Church really teaches about Scripture and how highly we hold it, check that out. So that's all we have for today. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like a copy of today's show notes or have a follow-up question, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com or look me up on Facebook. If you'd like to have me come speak at your parish on this or many other topics, you can send me an email at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. May God bless and guide your efforts to bring the truth of the Catholic faith to the world. Bye now. My home down payment would be $74,000. But with my VA home loan, my down payment is zero. My service was then. My benefits are now. Get what you earned. Visit choose.va.gov. Not all veterans are eligible for the type or amount of benefits mentioned here. Let's talk about Medi-Cal. You have a choice, and Molina makes it easy, especially when it comes to the care you need. So let's talk about you, about making your life easier about extra help to manage your health. Let's talk about your needs now and for the future. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Molina. It starts with a phone call. Call 866-420-5330 or visit meetmolinaca.com. Let's talk today.